Welcome to Parlay Me Power Players. This is a podcast that explores the latest entrepreneurs, startups, founders, business leaders, and even enterprises that are changing the game. We call them the disruptors. You might see them as your mentors or maybe even your colleagues, but we are so excited to bring to you each week someone we find either fascinating, progressive, or someone that's really making changes in all kinds of industries. We are agnostic in what we cover, so we cover everything from mobility to AI to food and produce, you name it, we cover it. But most importantly, we want to showcase to you entrepreneurs that are really making a difference and making the world a better place. Hi guys, so welcome to Parlay Meet Power Players podcast. Today we have a very unique and highly driven individual on the show. We have Joanne Wilson. She's a New York-based angel investor, blogger, podcaster, and self-proclaimed LA woman living in Manhattan who oversees Gotham Gal Ventures. So from 22 years of age, Joanne was responsible for the second largest cosmetics department store, Macy's. Um, She oversaw more than 100 employees and she has immense experience across many sectors, having moved from retail to wholesale and then into the media technology space. Joanne once led sales for Silicon Alley Reporter, which focused on New York Silicon Alley before, before pursuing life as an angel investor. Joanne is married to venture capitalist Fred Wilson and co-founder of Union Square Ventures. And in 2016, Cranes included Fred and Joanne in the power couples list. Joanne focuses primarily on companies owned or founded by women uh, with roughly, I believe, 75% of her portfolio companies are women-led, ranging from coffee shops to tech. Joanne's successful investments include Blue Bottle Coffee, Food 52, Nestio, Taxi Treats, Daily Worth, Clutter, which is one of my favourites, and Path Forward, among many others. In August 2018, Forbes ranked her 25th in the list of 50 angel investors based on investment volume and successful exits. She has been involved in numerous real estate investments and as an investor, also a few restaurants in New York. So in in addition to these endeavours, Joanne has been involved in various education projects, served as a chairperson at Hot Bread Kitchen, a non-profit committed to increasing access to the culinary industry for women and minority entrepreneurs. Joanne has maintained her very popular blog, GothamGal.com, for over 11 years and went on to name her investment fund after the blog itself. More recently, she's launched her own podcast series, Positively Gotham Gal, and it's a podcast that showcases women entrepreneurs. Welcome, Joanne. I know it's a long intro, but you've done a lot. <laughs> Thank you. Actually, you know, I will say is I've actually been posting longer than that. I have been posting since uh, 2004. 2004. Wow. I- That's crazy. Yeah. Hi, 2004. Wow. You have been. <laughs> You've been very active. You've been very busy. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I'll get to another, I know. So, so look, Joanne, look, thank you for joining us today. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. My pleasure. Now, you started, just to kick things off, you started investing and making businesses from such an early age. 
And I guess one of the things, you know, you probably asked a lot, but what do you think makes a successful entrepreneur? I mean, is it drive? Is it imagination? Is it leadership? Is it consistent failure or perseverance? Or is it all of the above? Is, is there key attributes you can kind of pinpoint or is it arbitrary? You know, that actually is a great question. I think it's almost all of the above. I mean, the one thing that's consistent is the importance of um, when you look at founders that you're going to invest in, at the end of the day, it's the person, right? You want someone who is tenacious, extremely curious, and has a vision and is going to push forward until they get that vision built. And, you know, failure is a very important thing, but, you know, some have failed and come back. Some have just made an incredible first business and never made one again. Um, But, you know, I think most really great entrepreneurs are probably unhirable people. Um, They just cannot work within an organization like they have to lead lead their own. Yes. Uh, Yes, I can. I can uh, understand that. So I guess um, a question for you is, and you have spoken about this a bit. I've obviously been listening to a lot of your podcasts and reading a lot of your blog posts. But like, how much does childhood or I guess family upbringing influence? I guess the choice to become an entrepreneur. I know you have some terrific insights here. Um, I mean, you were born in the 1960s in LA. Your mother was a teacher, I believe, and your father an underwater nuclear warfare engineer, which I think is sounds extraordinary. Um, both your parents were entrepreneurs and had their own businesses. Can you tell us a little bit about, I guess, your childhood and how perhaps that shaped your choice to become an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think that if you got, I mean, and Jerry Colon has actually spoken about this, is that if you get... Um, a bunch of entrepreneurs into a room, you know, and um, ask if they um, have gone through, you know, perhaps a divorce in the family or, you know, a variety of traumatic things when they were younger. A lot of those people are entrepreneurs as well as um, uh, I have found certainly through talking to so many women over the years that one person at least is in the family is an entrepreneur. And a lot of times um, that is, you know, I think the stats are if your parents are entrepreneurs, the chance that you will be is like almost in the 90 percentile because it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way of life, right, that you get used to. And so when you're living in that kind of family where, you know, there is flexibility and everyone's working 24-7, it's something you kind of get used to. Um, you know, I think for me, one of the reasons, and I've had entrepreneurship in my family through several generations, um, but, you know, my parents got divorced when I was in uh, about 15 years old, but also, you know, perhaps it was the generation, perhaps it was my family, whatever, but, you know, at a very young age, um, I was kind of thrown into, because I was capable of being really much responsible for uh, myself and um, kind of raising myself and when I was young and so I think that that has to do with it too. Yeah fantastic yeah look I agree I, I believe it is something you know it's a bit of both it's definitely your parents it's your upbringing it's nature nurture it's the whole thing. Um, I guess mm-hmm. um, as mentioned earlier you started out kind of overseeing the cosmetics department at Macy's then you worked mm-hmm. in sales for a startup magazine um, and you've been blogging since, you know, uh, well, you, you sent since 2004. Um, mm-hmm. You know, 
you I believe you also have this saying of that all the dots connect when you know when you're yeah. career trajectory can you tell me a bit about I guess your experience of being a blogger um how that's changed and I guess how that equipped you for being this amazing angel investor too yeah you know I mean like when you when I think that everything you do in your career connects for a reason you know I mean I was talking to someone this week who is building mixed um income housing for cities which is so needed and but the reality is, is you know 30 years ago she was working in that type of arena and over time her knowledge has changed from different heads in different hats but it all sort of coordinates together and when i was at macy's and responsible for you know the profit and loss of a department and this huge group of people that were reporting to me and I was the youngest one, um, I, you know, it, it taught me skills and, um, and they have stuck with me in many ways that the responsibility of 100 people is very similar to the responsibility of putting money into founders and helping them um, and nurturing them and, and being available for them. Hmm, absolutely. And uh, look, I, I think blogging as well, it's, you know, it's, in essence, it's great storytelling, right? So when you're a startup, half half the challenge is to tell your story um, and to find the audience. And I think uh, perhaps as a blogger, I mean, I know for myself, I love hearing stories. I'm ignited by hearing people's stories. Um, and if it resonates with me, I'm you know, enchanted. So I think that could, you know, be true for you too. You know, you, the art of storytelling of storytelling is key obviously to a blogger and I'm sure you that would resonate when you assess startups is that right absolutely I mean you know it all comes when you meet someone if they can't tell their tell you what their company is in really one or two sentences you know that's a Mm -hmm. red flag right it's like concise crisp and um uh and, and knowing what you're doing and um you know, I think that that is extremely important. Um, when people babble on words, you know, that means that they're, they're not so sure what they're doing either. Sure, sure. So so a big question for you, I mean, it's, you know, it's like I'm Australian, Australian obviously, and it's always Sydney, Melbourne, Sydney, Melbourne, this bit of, you know, competition there, <laughs> especially with lockdown going on in one state and not the other. But, you know, you are LA born, but you made the move to New York. I'm really interested in like how... New York has, you know, shaped you as a business person because like you, I interact with a lot of people all over the world um, and there's something to be said, I think, for a city and having its own unique business style, so to speak. So what I love about New York um, from my short stint working, working there is like it's fast, it's responsive, it's quick-witted, you know, it, lack of a better word, you kind of get shit done kind of mentality. Totally. It's sync. Yeah, it's sink or swim, um, which is totally different to the LA, which is you know, very laid back and it'll happen tomorrow and it's a less sense of urgency. Mm-hmm. So I guess back to my question is what is it about New York, I guess, that has influenced or helped shape your business style or rather investment style? Yeah, well, you know, I was born in LA and then, you know, we moved to Michigan um, when I was like set six, seven, and then moved to the DC area and I went to school in Boston. And then when I graduated, I came to New York and now, you know, lucky enough that um, my brother lived out, moved out there with his family. And so we spend our winter months in LA. So I do get my little, you know, 
at Los Angeles fix and it's completely different than New York. But I will say the beat of the street and the intensity of New York is something that just works with me and I crave it. And, you know, the minute I get back, I hit the concrete. Um, and, um, you know, it, for me, as I've gotten older, I found that it's really, really hard to be there 12 months a year because I've never figured out how to slow down there. And so there is something very unique about that New York mentality. Um, it's almost like, you know, the carpe diem, everyone wants to take as much as they can um, all day long. Someone told me um, a great story, which is like in New York, you get up, you know, you have coffee, you have another coffee and another coffee and you go all day. And then by seven o'clock or eight o'clock or nine o'clock, then you move to alcohol, you know, and you go out and see friends and then you stumble home, you know, after a long, long day and you get up and do it again. And we're in California, you know, you get up, you have your juice, you take your run, you know, it's just a completely different mentality. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It is. It really is. I worked for some time in um, entertainment marketing in LA and then came into the corporate world in New York and the, the stark difference just, you know, and look, they both have their pluses and minuses, but I think it's really interesting um, how it kind of affects your work style. So so I guess, um, look, it's been documented that your husband perhaps um, encouraged you to invest in your first investment, which was mm-hmm. called Herb, um, which you described at the time as a business to business and business con- to consumer read. Um, this was, I guess, your first foray into investing. Can you share with our listeners just a little bit about why Curb captured your imagination and I guess ultimately ignited your investor spirit? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I had been involved with the internet, um, you know, in the mid-90s and as we all know, um, you know, the entire internet sort of imploded when um, the mortgage crisis happened and um, you know, there was this whole thing, which, you know, the internet has done, which, you know, was utterly ridiculous. It was just the beginnings of, you know, not only the internet, but, you know, back in technology and, and cloud, I mean, you, you name it. And so, you know, I, um, I took a back seat for a while, which was completely fine. And I was watching, uh, Curb at Media, which is actually part of, also had Racked and Eater. And I was you know, going to these sites a couple times a day uh, just to see, you know, what was happening. And um, my husband came home. I mean, he knows that I, you know, we would talk about it. And I was like, you know, it is such a unique media business. I don't think magazines are going to go away, but I do think what I love about it is that it's business to consumer, but it's, and it's also business to business. So if you're in the industry, you're reading it. And if you are a consumer who loves it, you're reading it too. And, um, you know, he came home one day and and I I knew the founder and he said, you know, they're raising money. And I was like, wow. And he's like, you should invest in this. He's like, you'll be so good at this. It's like, first of all, you know how to make money, you know, you know, you know exactly how to make money. And, you know, um, I, I just, you know, you, you're really good at helping people and managing and having a good uh, gut about what things are going on. And I just think you'd be a really good investor. And so, you know, I, I, I hooked up with the founder and I said that I would invest. It's more money than I've really ever put into anything else um, because I didn't realize, you know, one investment would turn to 130, but it has been a fantastic investment and it's been the gift that keeps giving because, you know, we, we made money when we sold it to Vox. We made money again um, when Vox's stock um, went, when, uh, it went through the roof, the, um, the value, and we all got some in the secondary market, and we all still own a piece of Vox. So 
it has been, you know, a win-win for all of us. And what's really nice is that the people who are on the board are now all on a board together again. And so um, that's super cool because, you know, we all know each other through business and can trust each other. And, um, you know, that's been, uh, it's, it, it's really been um, just a great um, opportunity to work with all of these people, not only once, but twice. <laughs> Yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, look, it sounds to me like you love the journey. I, I guess that brings me to my next um, question. It's like, what is it that attracts you to like the startup investment world? Because you are a serial um, investor. I think you just mentioned before 133 investments. Um, mm -hmm. Is it the relationships? Is it the wins? Um, certainly, it's not the losses, or maybe, I mean, obviously, they're learnings. Um, but what is it that you are most attracted to in the investment space for startups? Yeah, I think what it really is, is the, um, the intellect of the people and their drive and their desire um, to build something for the future. And um, I do like building things. I'm not really interested in things that are already baked. Um, you know, I like the journey and I've had some great success with some, um, you know, uh, from companies that it's actually fascinating that I was the first dollar in considering that you know, nothing is really that, um, you know, buttoned up at that point. So it's tremendously rewarding, but it's funny when they sell and I get the check, it's like, okay, like it's great. And that's what I'm in there for, obviously, but that's not what interests me. It's almost like, you know, okay, I'm just moving on now. Like I don't care as much about the, um, the exit as much as I care about the journey. Right. Got it. Got it. Oh, that's fabulous. Um, well, I guess, um, you know, obviously you're a huge advocate for equal rights. Um, you know, you invest heavily in women-led startups. Um, you know, you, you're obviously super supportive to the women entrepreneur movement. Um, and, and you were a pioneer in it, let's just say, because you co-founded and co-chaired the annual Women Entrepreneurs Festival. Um, mm -hmm. And you chaired the board of Hot Bread Kitchen, which is a non-profit that promotes and trains female minority bakers. And you're also the coach of Path Forward, a non-profit established in 2018, I believe, with a mission to get people back to work after they've taken some time off for caregiving. Um, can, can you tell perhaps the people listening today why limit, well, sorry, why women-led startups are so important uh, to the startup ecosystem and specifically, I guess, the differences you see um, in them compared to male-led startups? You know, it's a multiple things. When I started investing um, as well as when I was blogging, I heard from so many women um, through email, you know, which is like nobody gets me, no one gets my startup, and I sort of made this conscious decision to invest in women and also invest in minorities. Um, you know, I, I felt like nobody was hearing their stories and no one was listening to what they were saying or nobody really understood what they were all about. And, and, um, and you know, it wasn't really of like, you know, I'm going to be so early to the party because I see what's happening down the line. It was more like it's their time and it is, you know, there are so many opportunities um, with the opportunity with backend technologies that people can create businesses that are very much perhaps female thought driven or minority driven that they see things in their lives that, you know, the white man on the other side doesn't see. And so, um, you know, I, I, that's what I saw. And so, um, you know, I'm one of the most 
proud things I am is of that I saw that and started investing in those people early on. And it's been great. And even the ones that have failed, I still have relationships with. You know, I want to see them succeed because companies that are diverse do better because everyone comes yeah. to the table with a very, very different thought process. They're coming from a different place. And to me, that's really, really important. Absolutely. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit, I guess, about your nonprofit path forward, um, which uh, I believe is in New York, Boulder, San Francisco and L.A. Um, and mm-hmm. partnerships with Amazon. Um, and I believe you've had a highly successful placement rate of like almost 100 yes. percent. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this? Because I'm really intrigued by this one. Yeah, I mean, it is it is. Women talk about all the time about how, you know, I got off the train basically to raise my kids and now I can't get back into the workplace. Um, I will say is now we're in this, you know, Zoom world um, is I really thought in the 90s when, you know, these Internet companies were being built. I believe then that was going to be amazing because women were going to be able to work at home and we, they, we were going to be understanding a family life. Actually, it took until coronavirus for this to happen. Yeah. Um, but it was, you know, but it took a long time because what we were on the precipice of it. Someone just pushed us off the cliff, mm. you know. So, um, you know, I what happened there was like these women, and most of them, um, you know, are ready to go back to work. They they have no interest in staying home, and there are many that say they want to go back to work, but they really don't want to go back to work, mm. and that's fine. Um, you know, I hope we have men like that in the future. And, um, you know, we started talking to these companies again, diversity, right? If you can bring in someone who, you know, has two kids and is getting back to the workplace, I mean, long as we can ramp them up and they understand the technology, um, that they can use that they haven't been using for 10 years. What we've found is that most of the, um, divisions that they're working in just love these people because, you know, it's a it's a different look. They're wiser. They're great mentors. I mean, it's just been a win win for everybody. Absolutely. So, so I guess um, something I'm particularly interested about with Path Forward, I guess the partnership kind of element seems very core to the business model. Um, that's it. How important are partnerships to startups? Because there's often like a mentality. I, I know certainly like you know I can do it all, or if anything. I've learned, um, you know, in my experience being an entrepreneur, like if you can't beat them, join them. And some of my most active or potential competitors have actually become my most prominent advocates um, via partnerships. So what advice can you give entrepreneurs when it comes to developing partnerships? You know, I think it depends on what your company is doing and you know how much capital you have. I mean, you know, we definitely did business with um, um, more middle stage companies because, you know, it costs money to, to work with them and create these, um, what we were doing um, with our curriculum. And so, it, you know, the, the smaller companies don't really know what to do with these people. Um, you know, they, and, and, you know, some companies just have so many people that are in their um, pipeline, they don't even need to worry about having people, um, hiring the right people. So for us, the partnerships made sense for uh, larger companies that, you know, we're hiring on a daily basis. But for companies, I do think that partnerships, particularly now, can be super helpful as long as everyone on the side of the table is getting something out of it. Right. 
Right, absolutely. So, look, I love your, obviously, Gotham Gal blog, and I'm not the only one, obviously. It's highly successful. Um, I was looking through some of your recent blogs, um, and one that stood out to me was the one titled Mommy. <laughs> um, as you say, Mommy, or we say Mummy. Um, what I thought was prominent about this blog post was the importance for giving, and I think you touched on it earlier when you were talking about your upbringing and childhood, but giving your children the independence so they can become like champions of their own life and ultimately take responsibility. I guess like today with, you know, how do mothers navigate, and this is just very much a motherly question, it's not so much investing, um, but how do mothers kind of navigate this landscape? You know, I'm a new mother myself, so I've got a three-month-old. But, um, you know, when they're cooped up, I guess, in a small apartment, um, with no room, I guess, today for social distancing perhaps, um, you know, people worry about even spending time with people based on, you know, contracting the virus. So I guess some mother motherling advice for those listening, like what? how do you kind of balance that, giving responsibility to children yet, protecting them in this kind of environment we're in now you know it, it is hard i mean I, I will say that you know when i look back i mean you know i we've always raised our kids with the thought that they are super smart people they are just young and they're small and their brains haven't um developed enough to know what they know and know what they don't know um, and that if you teach, talk to them, not like children, but like not equals because you're still the parent, but that you respect what they have to say, you're listening to what they're saying, and you want them to find ways to entertain themselves and make their own decisions. I mean, here's a perfect example. When um, my oldest daughter was, um, God, she must have been like six months old, maybe she was, you know, crawling around and we had this whole thing of record albums that was on the bottom of a, a credenza and it was open and she used to go in these record albums and you know futz around with them and i would say no no that's not for you and one day she pulled one of these record albums out and of course she went flying back and smashed her head on the ground and started crying you know and i of course comforted her but i said i told you don't play with this that's why and so there was a connection. She never touched the albums again. And the truth is, I never um, kid-proofed our house. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like I taught them. I expected that if I talked to them in a way that I respected they were smart, they would do what was the right thing. I mean, of course, you know, every kid is different. But, you know, it was about them finding their own time and their time to read and their time in the crib or, you know, you're not getting out and doing this until this specific time. And I think that there's a lot of fear um, for young mothers. um, And also there's a lot of helicoptering um, and um, that doesn't do anyone any good. Right. Right. Because it goes on until you're 20. I mean, I see parents who are 20 years old or 24 years old are still interested in like thinking they can help these kids or, you know, and it's like, no, they're adults, you know, and you have to let them find their own way and have their own failures. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That they were the key learnings happen. Uh, definitely. Well, I, look, obviously, the the private sphere is you know being 
unveiled, so to speak, and, uh, you know, it's in it's in the forefront of everything at the moment from, you know, Zoom conferencing calls where kids are running in the background and, you know, everyone's juggling everything, uh, which I think is brilliant. It's, it's really interesting, the transformation that's happening. But um, I guess, um, you know, with this in mind, the private sector, in another of your recent blog posts um, titled, as always, I think it's your most recent one, in fact, as always, the private sector saves the day. <laughs> with <laughs> Leadership would be nice. Remember the days when the government was respected? We would all feel thankful, even if we didn't agree that the president would guide us. Wait, I think that was before I was born. So <laughs> I thought it was brilliant. Um, look, without getting too political, although I think the days of being apolitical are over for all of us. But um, how do you navigate, I guess, and this is a big question, so how do you navigate in a, in a global climate where clearly there's no leadership? Um, where do you or should we look for leadership these days? Is it legacy brands? Um, you know, where, where should it come from? You know, I mean, it is such a hard thing. I think that at the end of the day, we are in this time period right now um, that we've hidden, that we're at the top of the mountain, we're at an apex and we've unpacked all our gear and we're looking around and we've become corrupt and filthy and taken advantage of the system and have really taken advantage to believing that what we've done is the way there is and not looking to the next generation um, and how they think and how they want things to be done and how you know, we need to have a cleaner environment and we need to have more transportation throughout our cities and even into the suburbs, even across the country. And we need to have health care for all. And we need to make sure people have homes, roofs over their head and food on their table. We are a, as a, as a globe, we have plenty of money and as countries, we have plenty of money. And so, you know, what I say is, you know, go out and vote, go yeah. out and vote and get rid, get rid of these people. You know, I mean, that is the only thing that we can do because whether we like it or not, it doesn't matter where we live, is that the, the, the Constitution and what was set up for every single country, even though government is big and, um, and unwieldy and, uh, and, 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 and frustrating, it is what sets the laws and it is what sets the environment and the culture. And it's time for change. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think um, in one of your interviews, I forgive me, I forget where it was, but you mentioned, you know, the need for a leader that cares and you likened Biden to, and I love this analogy, like it's like feeling that grandpa, if he gets in, it's, it's that sense of like feeling like that grandpa is loving us, that's like he actually generally cares um, and this is something that's been missing from politics, um, specifically in America, right? Um, look, we won't get into politics too much in this in this podcast, but I think it's 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 really um, paramount, and I I agree. It's definitely time for a change. Um, I guess look, being an entrepreneur, um, you know, is a profession that attracts people that you know, I guess, not afraid of risk or they're risk takers, if you will. Um, and in COVID times, we're all suddenly struck with a complete fear of the unknown, obviously. Um, in times of intense dis disruption, I believe that that's when the most innovations can actually be made. Um, do you think this is a new era for a type of entrepreneur to emerge? Uh, or is it rather the 
ability for pre, I'm going to call them pre-COVID entrepreneurs, which sounds terrible, but pre-COVID entrepreneurs to pivot, um, I guess, shift gears or rather recalibrate their businesses? I think it's all of the above. Um, I there's, there's plenty that have jumped in and realized that it wasn't working and mm-hmm. immediately recalibrated their businesses and have had tremendous success through this time period. There will be, uh, and there are many of them who have done unbelievable through COVID-19. And I think because they saw the future and then the future got here so much quicker because this has pushed everyone's hands to actually accelerate. And then there's plenty that are in this world that it's like, they're not really great entrepreneurs and maybe they shouldn't be entrepreneurs. So I do think that we're going to see a lot of cream rising to the top in the next decade, which is a good thing. Back to what you were saying about having someone who cares. I think that's important for a founder too. At the end of the day, you want to create cultures where people feel wanted and needed, needed. And so you know, and, and talk about what's going on now and talk about what's happening in the businesses and talk about even people that go out and have children and come back to work and how are you doing? Because at the end of the day, all people want is someone that they feel that they are, um, someone cares about them, right? And this, these environments, which we've created, you know, years back, oh my God, when I was working in the 80s, crazy lunatics that would scream at you like mad men or mad women and not treat you properly and say horrible things to you that is not acceptable it wasn't acceptable then and now it's becoming less acceptable because people are saying enough is enough so i do think that that is um important for all of us to feel like you know someone is looking out for us someone cares about what we're doing and i and i think that's very important as an entrepreneur to put that out there in their companies they'll get find themselves with um companies that have better success um, people that are more loyal and people that want to work for them. Absolutely. I, I, look, I think this brings me to my next question, which is kind of your, I guess, um, what differentiates you or, you know, as an angel investor, so to speak. I mean, look, as an angel investor, and um, you always have a closer bond to a founder perhaps than you would obviously a VC to a VC. Like the VC model is a, often more transactional and goal-orientated. Um, and angels obviously, they cut a smaller check um, and you end up being kind of a resilient sounding board, if you will. Um, it's an important role. Um, can you tell me how important it's been during this pandemic to your portfolio of startups? Um yeah, I'm sure you've worn the hat of counsellor many times and you don't need to name which startups, but how important has that been to your founders? You know, I think it's um, the relationship that I've had with most of my founders has been very much as a consigliere. And so, um, you know, that when things go wrong or even when things go right, you know, they call me and um, and for advice or for whatever it may be. And that that feels really good. Um, so, um, you know, and I think that there are some great VCs and there's some really bad VCs. And the reality is when you get good money, um, institutional money, they should be as connected to you as angel investors. They should be part of your business. They should be talking to you a couple times a week. Um, they should be helping you think things through, um, you know, all of the above. And so, um, you know, we do see a lot that just show up for the monthly meeting and that is not, you know, what an investor should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so I guess what is your investment thesis, if you will, and 
what's your typical check size that you cut and all that good stuff? You know, my 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 thesis has always been I like to own one percent of the company from the very beginning, and um, you know I don't want to really invest in companies that are valued over five million dollars. Um, in the last couple of years, I've really sat back on my heels. Um, I just did, you know, one company um, really in the in um, in this past year, um, just because I think it's a, it's a multiple of things. I think when I started, I was quite the uh, generalist. I think generalists work. I think now you can't be a generalist. I think you really need to understand what's going on in, in, in different businesses. And because of technology, you know, there's not one company built in, in a vertical. There's multiple companies building, built in healthcare. And you better understand when you're investing that you're not competing against someone that actually 60 other people started the same damn company. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, so, so I think as an investor, you have to be a lot more savvy in regards to a vertical. Um, and I'm glad that I started in a time where I can invest in a variety of different verticals because it's, you know, it's been really interesting and I'm really curious and I, I and it's been fun to understand so many different uh, arenas, but I think now you really do have to understand your vertical. And, and also I, I felt that the valuations of companies were ridiculously overpriced. Um, and I hope that they go back to what they should be. Um, there is no reason why a company pulling out of the gate, um, you know, finally figured out a company, uh, what they're doing, maybe a little traction is worth $10 million. I just don't get it. And, um, you know, to me, and, and if you look at uh, the really successful investors, um, they're successful and they've had multiple times uh, returns on their investment because they invested really early at the right price. And so that's what it's all about. And when we see these uh, um, institutional investors go after the hot company, you know, and, and, and create this, like, everyone wants to get in and all of a sudden the price goes up higher and higher and everyone finally gets in. You know, if you've really done the research and pulled behind the curtain, you'll find that most of those companies end up being big donuts. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's true. Overvaluation is... A key problem at the moment. So, well, you know, hopefully not for too much longer. So um, that, guess, brings me to another question. Do, do you think everyone needs to raise? Because, you know, today, well, obviously before the pandemic, there was more capital available than ever. Um, but it seems that, you know, the VC, uh, every VC has the most attractive cohort program. I mean, there's a lot of temptation to kind of join and, and raise. Um, what can be said for bootstrapping or rather self-funding, scaling on your own? Um, rather than on a VC's roadmap? You know, I think it depends on your company. I mean, mm-hmm. I can't tell you the amount of people that I've gotten emails from over the years. Um, there's this one particular couple in Atlanta that was doing something and, you know, sent me the deck and blah, 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 blah. And I said, listen, you're making money. Don't take money from anyone. Mm. Like, take your time. And, and, and here's why. You're going to spend the next six months talking to investors no one's going to give you money for this thing. I know mm. because this isn't what people invest in. And you spend more time, put your head down and pay attention to your company. Three years later, he emails me on the same thread. He's like, you're the only person that told me this. And then he, at this point, he was doing like $35 million a year. And he's like, thank you so much. And so, you know, I think sometimes that not everyone is, is bound for an investment. Um, and, and also you have to look at the, the vertical you're in. I mean, consumer product companies should not be, um, 
uh, valued at 10 times earnings. You know, they don't sell that way in the publicly traded markets. And so there has to be some real thought process behind what you're doing and what kind of life you want to live. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, so I guess, you know, um, where does, where does, I guess, luck fall into the overall influence of success? I mean, you've got your startup team, you've got product, you've got timing. I know I had a, I had a concept, I'll say back in 2005, which feels like forever ago when I think about it. Um, I had a, right, it's like, when was that? Um, and I had this idea for this company called Cuckoo Who, it was called, and it was births, deaths, and marriages all celebrated online. Obviously, far before the times um today would flourish obviously in the times we're in um you know are there some startup ideas that you've come across that you've said no to and today you think I guess look and the thing is we all hope that COVID is not a long-term thing it's a short-term thing and that's a different discussion on whether you know you you invest for the long term or short term but you know all due respect for say now is going to be in you know for 10 years let's just pretend you know imagine that we're in this kind of predicament for 10 years I hope we won't be but is there a startup I guess that you've said no to or passed on that you think would flourish under these kind of conditions we're in um without calling the only yeah I'm only honestly there's only one startup I passed on because I um you know I was in uh the, the entity that I invest in actually was pretty tight right then um, just because I had other companies that had, you know, their second or third round I needed, I wanted to participate because I saw what was going on. Um, and I'm really sorry that I didn't invest it. It has nothing to do with the COVID. It actually is a consumer product and it has to do with, you know, soaps and shampoo, soaps and, and fragrances. But, you know, I just knew it. Like they were, they were they were they were really hungry and really entrepreneurial and i knew it was going to be successful Mm -hmm. so you know i mean um but in general i i I don't look backwards but i i i I think the only time i really look backwards and why i didn't do something because it's really hard to put yourself in that position at that time in that day and what were you feeling and what was happening around us is that i do like to go and think about why why didn't that one succeed right what was it? And and go back to when I invested in it to think, hmm, you know, what were you thinking when you invested in it? And and that has been really helpful. And I think what I've really realized is trust your gut. You know, I mean, I, I there's two companies I invested in this is a while ago. And even when I committed and there was great people that also invested alongside me, you know, I thought, I don't know if these people are really up for this challenge. And I was right. They weren't. Mm. And, um, you know, don't be so impressed with the people around you. When people send you these notes, like he's investing, she's investing. And you're like, whoa, those are really smart people. But the reality is just because they're smart people doesn't mean that they're great investors. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So true. So, um, look, something I want to I want to kind of loop back a little bit to is the uh, the family, right? Um, the sense of having a family, family and balancing the life, uh, you know, work life balance. Personally, I found family life very empowering. I don't know about you, but since I have had a child, I'm overly driven. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. Like it's ignited something in me. So, um, I I love your analogy that in the old days, like you know, people dealt with having children like not dealt with them but they they found a balance like you know if you're on the farm you balance you know having a farm and looking after the children and you are a big 
advocate for encouraging founders to not put off actually starting a family. Can can you tell us a little bit more about your positioning on this? Don't put it off. So funny. I talked to a founder this morning who is in her mid thirties and um, uh, she finally met this guy and they were getting married. And um, I said, don't wait, don't wait to get pregnant. You know, mm-hmm. and I said, it, it's not mm-hmm. about the entry. It's about the exit. And, um, and founders get that. Um, and I've had yeah. multiple founders who I've invested in, who I've given that advice and have gotten pregnant and said, I'm so glad you pushed me on that one. Um, and, um, you know, because at the end of the day, I've seen founders who have worked in companies and have given blood, sweat and tear for seven years, eight years. And then at the end, you know, it doesn't work. And nobody makes money and they don't make money. And the reality is, is they're the ones that were in that thing for 24 seven, ignore all the money. You know what they, whoever puts money in can afford to lose money. It's about the founder. And so don't stop your life for your startup. You'll figure out how to have a life while you have a startup. You're listening, P. When you're listening to this podcast, it's very valuable advice. Um, and, and this brings me to like, what do you think will happen post COVID? Because obviously, life work paradigm is changing. I mean, for myself, I've had to really recalibrate. And my husband works, I know, two days in the, at home, two days in the office, which has been really. Um, I haven't known any different. Obviously, I've had a baby for three months, so I've come into it like this. I must say, you know, it's really nice when he's not home. <laughs> I know it sounds horrible to say that, but, you know, I don't need my husband home 24-7. I don't think anyone does. It's nice to have that balance. But do you think the paradigm has shifted forever and what that means for kind of life-work balance? Um, I hope so. Um, you know, I mean, I just hope I mean as I said the mommy thing which is we are I think there will always be mothers have the maternal clock inside absolutely so so I've developed um a saying during this entire pandemic um and it's that you can't teach stupid but I, I think we need an entire other podcast for this um but I want to just touch quickly um before we end the podcast kind of like about some of the silver linings, if you will. Um, you know, obviously, for example, inequalities of life have been highlighted from homelessness um, to you know, the hygiene protocols of factory and meat workers to, you know, the African-American population being more exposed to COVID, you know, race relations. Do you think, do you think this is a, a big wake-up call society needed? And if so, will the lessons learned continue post-COVID? I think they will. I mean, maybe I'm crazy, but I will say, you know, one of the reasons I really had pulled back over the last couple of years is, as I said, I thought everything was just too frothy and too crazy. And it was like, and it was like the one thing I love about New York is the insanity, but it just got to a place where it just, it just felt like, you know, anxiety ridden. And, um, and I knew that it, there was going to be a breaking point because you can't just keep going up, 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 up. I will say that I did not think there would be COVID or a pandemic, um, but I think the, the silver lining out of this is we can work from home, we do need human contact, and we have slowed down and had um, connected again with friends and family, have had dinners around the table, 
and have really rethought how we want to live our lives. Um, in mm. regards to, you know, Black Lives Matter, I think it's been a perfect storm. You know, people are at home, people are working on their own time, and people could literally go out of the house and say enough is enough. And, um, and, you know, things have happened quite quickly. People have been fired quickly. We're taking down, um, you know, statues. We're looking at our past, which is something that America has never been very good at. Europe has been. And we're saying, okay, you know what? It might've worked then, even though it really didn't work for all. We got to make it work for all if we're going to have the right country here. Um, so I do think that there have been silver linings through all of this. Um, and I think that one of the other biggest silver linings, although not silver now, is that, you know, the great Warren Buffett uh, saying, which is when the tide comes out, you see who's naked. And I think that a lot of our people in our country are naked, that these companies and restaurants, and, you know, has two weeks in the bank to survive. And, um, and there's been a lot of smoke and mirrors and there's been inflated prices from private equity and, um, and all of the above. And so I think that um, it has been eye-opening and we have to really rethink about how we function as an economy. And, and look, I 100% I agree on everything you just said. It's so true. Um, something I want to finish on, I've got a couple, there's two more questions, I promise, not long. Um, something I want to finish on is um, something that's new for you. Um, which is books. Um, now you're an avid reader, and you've dedicated page on your on your blog for book recommendations. Um, I come from a family of booksellers, and both my parents worked in publishing. I actually grew up, um, yeah, grew up with more books in the house than public clothing. Um, <laughs> the library was definitely the most sacred room in our house. But um, I go through waves of reading where I read maybe two books in a week and then I can literally go a year without reading another book. Um, I'm kind of, I guess, a binge, a binge reader. Um, where do you find the time and why do you think it's so important that people still read books? Um, yeah, I think books are a very important part of the art world and to read an author's look or story of how they see the world. Um, you know, I like memoirs, I like novels. Um, and, um, you know, I like historical novels. Um, you know, I just find books fascinating. Um, and I really don't watch TV. Honestly, when my kids were young, um, I used to watch all that, you know, nonsense with them. But what I found is that um, you can only do every you can't do everything. And I lost sort of interest in the evening watching TV. And so every night when I don't have anything video or going home, I read. And so um, that's how I've kept up with my reading. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I try to read at least one book a week. Sometimes I read several. When we're on vacation, I read, you know, plenty. But I think that um, to really keep your finger on the, uh, on the pulse of what is happening and where things are going, uh, just like to music or going to the theater or listening to a podcast um, or going to an art gallery and seeing what artists are creating based on what's going on in their world um, is the same thing about books. You know, I really feel that art is extremely important um, and particularly important for investors. I think that um, it gives you a better understanding of um, the world at large. 
Absolutely. Look, I, I look. I understand the importance of reading books. I know I need to do it more often. I, I guess. Look, we live in a world of kind of bite-sized information, and we, you know, I've been obviously into an on-demand society, if you will. Um, do you think this pandemic has given people more time to read a book, um, and I guess start a business? Yeah, I mean, I know people that have like drilled down on what they're doing, or drilled down on their resumes, and have have have, have found that they're um, you know a little more crystal clear on what they want to say um, about themselves or what they want to do. And I um, I think that's a silver lining too, right? There's this whole um, you know we came out of something which is like go 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 go, and I think that um, that's. that's I'll finish on something we always ask people here at Parley Me. Um, I'd love to know kind of if there's an entrepreneur that stands out to you. Um, now, this could be someone in your family. This could, um, you know, someone you just met the other day. It could be, you know, a founder in your portfolio. But is there someone that kind of for you embodies what it is to be an entrepreneur? You know, I mean, not really. I mean, you know, there's plenty of people I've met over the years that um, have run, you know, multiple businesses or one business that they live off of. And, um, you know, I do find myself drawn to those entrepreneurs and sort of quirky people and how they think. And um, it inspires me. But like, you know, I have a friend who, you know, is a chef and he is, you know, in his 50s and he's made money. Um, his whole life, you know, cooking for random people at random times. Like it's a really entrepreneurial life. And I, 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 I completely applaud him. You know, I have a friend who's an artist who's really done well um, and enough to have a lifestyle, you know, that she wants to live. And so um, I do think that is also one of the silver linings of this is that people are assessing what is it they want out of their life? You know, is it really important to me to live like this? You know, what is really important to me is this. And so, um, you know, I think that everyone has a little bit of that entrepreneurial spirit when it comes to that. Absolutely. No, I would agree again with you on that. Look, I, look thank you so much, Joanne, for your time. My pleasure. It's been so incredible to you and hear your story it's really incredible and really unique um look how anyone listening that has a startup idea i know you said you kind of you know scaled but you've made one investment in the past year but look you have a whole portfolio how do they kind of get in touch with you what's the best way to kind of reach out to you what do you like is it linkedin is it send you an email i mean obviously they can't (laughs) meet you in person right now And I don't think most will. But if you're someone, you know, within an internal company and you have a particular job or whatever, it's a great way to meet people and reach out to people and perhaps they send back. But to me, I just won't won't correspond on LinkedIn. Got it. Got it. So no LinkedIn people. <laughs> There's other ways to obviously find Joanne at gothamgal.com. Um you know, look, there's going to be a lot of ways that come up in the future now that we're all in this new normal world as well. Um, and, look, I thank you so much, Joanne, for your time again. And anyone listening to this, I hope you found it inspiring. I certainly have. And thank you so much, Joanne.
Thank you.